No matter what you're a fan of, Texas has the trip for you. There's the trip to Texas and the trip. Or maybe you're the kind of fan who'd prefer a trip to Texas or a trip. Either way, go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. Travel is great, but planning for travel can be time-consuming and difficult. That's where One Travel comes in. With One Travel, you'll find everything you need to book the perfect trip. Flights, hotels, cars, transportation, it's all right there. With One Travel, you can book online, via app, or even pick up the phone and talk to a travel advisor ready to help you make your selections. Visit onetravel.com slash music or call 855-437-2154. Plan it, book it, live it. One Travel. The great American novelist and chronicler of the Gilded Age, Edith Wharton, was born in New York City in January of 1862 in the middle of the Civil War. Yet she died in France at age 75 at her home outside of Paris where she had been living for many years. It is in celebration of Edith Wharton's birthday coming up on January 24th that I wanted to take this deeply personal look at her life. For most readers, if there is one city to which Wharton will be forever linked, it is New York. She lived herself inside that tight, suffocating, judgmental, tribal world of the Gilded Age that she chose to write about so critically and to analyze with her razor-sharp insight and pen. However, there is another city that Wharton used again and again in her work and one in which she herself lived, loved, and finally flourished. In fact, it's a city that created and molded, in effect, a different and a new Edith Wharton. For me, the deeper story of Wharton's life takes place here, and to know her New York life is only part of the story. In this episode, we are going to take a look at Edith Wharton's Paris, where she lived off and on beginning in 1906, finally settling permanently there in 1910, and eventually living exclusively in France until her death in 1937, an entire period of 31 years, almost half her life. For me, in looking at Edith Wharton's relationship with New York, we find the keys and clues to her literary life. But it is in looking at her life in Paris that we find the keys and clues to her soul. Hello, I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where we take a journey into the world's light and dark of America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. Paris, from the end of the 19th century up until the years of World War I, was a city that was evolving with the speed of its famous light. There were new ways to look at everything— and everyone. New ground was being broken in technology, science, social structures, and of course, all boundaries were being broken in the worlds of art, literature, and music. 
Edith Wharton, in her years in Paris, was an observer to all of this change. But if you're looking for a story centered in the bohemian left bank, in the cabarets of Montmartre, or the studios of Montparnasse, well, that was not Edith Wharton's Paris. Edith Wharton's Paris was a place, in some ways, of her own making in terms of what she chose to see, in which circles she circulated, and in how she interpreted French society as an outsider. Edith Wharton's Paris, as we shall see, was very much her own. In the final pages of The Age of Innocence, perhaps her finest novel, Wharton gives us the scene of our main character, Newland Archer, in Paris. The final scene is set years after the main action of the novel, and the older Newland has brought his grown-up son for a trip abroad. Newland has brought Dallas, his son, to meet the Countess Olenska, his childhood friend, the former Ellen Mingott. Newland had fallen in love with Ellen so many years before, however, was unable to marry or even pursue his love for her given the societal restrictions as well as the fact of his own impending marriage to someone else. When the pivotal moment arrives for the two men to ascend the elevator and for Newland to see Ellen for the first time in so many years, he instead chooses to stay behind and sit alone on a bench in the little square surrounded by 18th century townhouses and sends his son along ahead. Wharton never tells us exactly where Olenska's apartment is within the confines of Paris, but from the clues that she gives us, it's likely in a neighborhood she came to know intimately and deeply. The well-known image Martin Scorsese gives us in the 1993 film adaptation of The Age of Innocence places the scene in the Place de Furstenberg, a charming secluded square just off the Rue Jacob in the 6th arrondissement of Paris. He sat for a long time on the bench in the thickening dusk, his eyes never turning from the balcony. At length, a light shone through the window, and a moment later a manservant came out on the balcony, drew up the awnings, and closed the shutters. At that, as if it had been the signal he waited for, Newland Archer got up slowly and walked back alone to his hotel. While Wharton shows herself in a number of characters that she draws throughout her fiction, to me, there is no other so closely resembling her than that of Ellen Olenska. And in that heavily symbolic moment on the final page of The Age of Innocence, we know that Edith Wharton, like Ellen Olenska, has closed the window on what was once her American life. The Age of Innocence is predominantly set in New York, although the scenes following Newland and his wife May's wedding and this final scene are indeed set in Paris. One of the most important keys to understanding Wharton is to realize that she wrote The Age of Innocence along with some of her most important New York fiction, not when she was living in America at all, but long after she had established her life in France. The Age of Innocence was written quickly in only seven months and published in 1920, and it was for this that she won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, the first woman to do so, the following year in 1921, just over a hundred years ago. The bulk of Wharton's later work is indeed a look back in not only the world of New York in the 1870s as she knew it as a child, but a backward glance, as she called it, at a world that had long gone and by this point nearly vanished forever. 
Why did Wharton, towards the end of her life, she was to live another 17 years after all, why did she turn her final gaze back to New York from her vantage point in France? If you take anything away from this episode, it is my hope that you will begin to see and understand why. Edith Wharton had had a relationship with France in one form or another throughout her entire life. Both her parents, George Frederick Jones and her mother Lucretia, had traveled there. They both spoke French. Her father died in France on an extended trip in 1882, and her mother moved to Paris following his death to live, and she died there herself in 1901. Both of Wharton's brothers as well ultimately relocated to Paris. Edith learned to speak French as well as Italian and German when she was very young from tutors and governesses. From a young age, she was a passionate reader of the French classics from the 17th and 18th centuries, including the plays of Racine and Corneille. It was actually said that her spoken French was a bit old-fashioned in style, and there was a little bit of an American accent, and that overall she spoke perfectly à la Louis XIV. In addition to our look into why she chose to paint her most incisive portraits of New York in later life, one of our most central questions is why, at the same time, did Wharton identify so deeply and so passionately with the French and French culture? She identified with the centuries-old culture, the traditions, the aesthetics of Europe, and had since her earliest travels there as a child. It was that love that formed the bedrock of her sensibility. Paris was a place that Edith found where she could connect intimately and directly with artists, writers, and intellectuals in a way that she was unable to do, and certainly women in the late 19th century New York couldn't either. Women in the Gilded Age society of late 19th century New York were not encouraged to pursue relationships with artists and, God forbid, create work on their own. Furthermore, French culture, as she notes in her memoir, simply couldn't exist without great literature, and thus she was validated, not diminished as those from her old Fifth Avenue world would have been. Paris and France became worlds where she could rebuild her life after her emotionally draining and deeply unsettling marriage and divorce from her husband Teddy in 1913, a defining and pivotal event in her life. Wharton never felt completely rooted in America. Her sensibility had been formed in Europe as a child, and she never understood or cared for what was developing as the American aesthetic. The building of her glorious country house, The Mount, in Lenox, Massachusetts, was really an attempt to recreate a European world with the grand house and gardens, clear examples of English, French, and Italian architecture and design influences. Eventually, she traded it all for a life in Paris and the real thing with its sense of continuity with the traditions and cultures of the past 500 years just a few steps away in any direction from her door. After completing The Age of Innocence, Edith Wharton continued to look back and recreate the world of long-ago New York. Her perspective had been dramatically changed after experiencing World War I and its severe physical, mental, and moral destruction. She experienced this firsthand, and she looked back somewhat wistfully and nostalgically at a world she once knew with some sort of rules and moral order in place. What she saw in the immediate world around her following the war was a once beautiful world that had crumbled and was now unsteady and uncertain. 
The 1920s brought the publication of works such as Old New York, a collection of four novellas spanning the years from the 1840s, the world of her parents, to the 1870s when she herself was a child. She wrote her own highly selective memoir, A Backward Glance, in 1934, just three years before she died, and her final novel, The Buccaneers, set between New York and London, was left unfinished at her death and posthumously published. The Buccaneers told the story of several of New York society's million-dollar princesses who married European aristocrats. Wharton, to the end, debated, discussed, and captured the nuances and irreconcilable differences between European and American culture. But just exactly what was the Paris that Edith Wharton knew? Paris in the glittering years of the Second Empire between 1850 and 1870 was a lush, sophisticated world full of style and drama ruled by the court of Napoleon III and his gracious, glamorous Empress Eugenie. The destruction of the Franco-Prussian War in 1871 wiped that world away, and toward the end of the century, under a new republic, a new Paris emerged. It was truly a city of light. It's the period that we all love of the Impressionists, the great modern musical genius of Debussy and Ravel, the literary works of Gide, also Cocteau and Marcel Proust. Paris, the city, as well as Wharton, the writer, were both evolving into new and extraordinary entities. When I talk about Wharton, one of the points I like to make early on is that when Edith was four years old, her parents left New York and took her to Europe. American funds had devalued following the Civil War, and it was more economical for wealthy families to rent their New York properties and decamp to Europe. Edith and her family were in Europe for six years, between her ages of four and ten. They traveled between Italy, Spain, Germany, and France. What's important is that it was here and during this period that Wharton's entire sensibility and worldview were formed. In her memoir, A Backward Glance, she recounts one of her earliest memories from those years in Paris, the image of an elegant Empress Eugenie with her young son riding down the Champs-Élysées with a colorful, elegant complement of officers on horseback. Upon returning to New York when she was 10 years old, she again recounts in a backward glance her impressions of New York following the beauty and culture of Europe. One of my most depressing impressions of my childhood is my recollection of the intolerable ugliness of New York, of its untended streets and narrow houses so lacking in external dignity, crammed with smug and suffocating upholstery. How could I understand the people who had seen Rome and Seville, Paris and London, and who could come back to live contentedly between Washington Square and Central Park? She goes on to further characterize what she saw as, I quote, This little, low-studded, rectangular New York, cursed with its chocolate-colored coating of the most hideous stone ever quarried, a cramped horizontal gridiron of a town without towers, porticos, fountains, or perspectives hidebound in its deadly uniformity of mean ugliness. That passage says it all. For Edith Wharton, there was no turning back. 
Edith Newbell Jones married Edward Robbins Wharton in 1885 in New York, and they based their life in Newport with a regular schedule of trips to Europe. Edith was a cosmopolitan and made 66 trips across the Atlantic in her lifetime. Henry James called her the great pendulum that swung back and forth across the Atlantic. Paris became most particularly important to Edith Wharton in the spring of 1906. She and Teddy had spent the past Christmas at Biltmore in North Carolina, the home of the George Vanderbilts. Edith was now a literary star. The House of Mirth had been published that fall of 1905, and it had made her an overnight literary success and household name. Well over 100,000 copies were sold in its first year of publication. Edith and Teddy decided to spend an extended period in Paris and installed themselves at the Hotel Dominici and later at her brother's flat that spring at number three Place des États-Unis in the 16th arrondissement near the Arc de Triomphe. Paris was in the throes of the heady, combustive energy that we call the Belle Epoque. Politically, things had settled down a bit since the end of the last century, before they were to ignite again with the outbreak of war in 1914. Paris, in 1900, just a few years before the Whartons arrived for good, saw the opening of the Great Paris Exhibition, a world's fair with exhibits of technology and culture. Edith saw the Great Exhibition, but evidently was less than impressed. The city was now dominated by the steel girders of La Tour Eiffel that she and Teddy had also seen on previous trips to Paris in the 1890s. Art was moving on from the Impressionists to the moderns with Cezanne, Picasso, Matisse, and Gauguin all creating work. And even though she was getting older, the extraordinary Sarah Bernhardt still ruled the stage. The dance world was taken by Isadora Duncan, whom Wharton saw dance at a private salon and liked very much, and by the revolutionary Ballet Russe, which she also saw, including the debut of the young Nijinsky. Paris seemed filled with a sense of adventure and discovery. New automobiles were introduced by Peugeot and Renault, which allowed for freedom of movement and travel. Paris's famous metropolitan underground allowed Parisians further access to travel around the city as it opened up for the Great Exposition of 1900. The city had long ago been transformed by Baron Haussmann in the years preceding the 1870s from a medieval city into an enormous stage set of grand boulevards, enormous parks like the Bois de Boulogne, and the wide sidewalks for cafes and restaurants to allow their clientele to spill out of their doors. Paris was designed to be a city where the action took place on the street, and by the early years of the 20th century, that's exactly where the party really was. After this exciting spring in 1906, where they got an extended taste of life in Paris, Edith and Teddy returned to the Mount for the summer. Yet Paris called once again, and early the following year they returned to make an even more permanent attempt at life in the city. In the winter of 1907, Edith chose to rent the apartment of the George Vanderbilts, their Biltmore friends. They sailed in early January and were set up by her 45th birthday on January 24th. 
The Vanderbilt's apartment at 58 Rue de Varennes was located in a select and exclusive section of Paris, the 7th arrondissement, known to all Parisians as the Faubourg Saint-Germain. The simplest translation of Faubourg is suburb, and in a sense, that's how it grew. In the 1600s, it was agricultural countryside, but by mid-century, a few townhouses began to be built. At the time of Edith's entrance into the Faubourg, there were many members and descendants of the aristocratic old guard still living in their ancestral homes, perhaps a bit worse for financial wear, yet closely guarding and clinging to the rules and traditions of their ancient lineage and ancestry. The streets of the Faubourg today contain much of the architecture of the 17th and 18th century with imposing facades, giving little inclination of the lives and seductions that once occurred behind their walls. The classic Faubourg townhouse has a severe and formal facade to the street, a large entrance doorway large enough to accommodate carriages, of course, and an inner courtyard. The apartments are reached through internal stairways off the inner courts. Much like a dowager who only gives a glimpse of herself behind her fan, the salons of the Faubourg were well protected behind fortress-like walls. When Edith and Teddy moved into the Vanderbilts at 58 Rue de Varennes, Edith found herself directly in the middle, both physically and psychologically, of the Faubourg. The French aristocracy, not dissimilarly to the closed tribes of Gilded Age New York, was shut off from any newcomers, at least to their inner sanctum. However, Edith was lucky. It has been noted that the Vanderbilt apartment came with its connections, an attached social circle of wealthy Americans that were often in Paris. In these early years of the 20th century, Paris was awash with the newly moneyed Americans anxious to buy up whatever Paris had on offer. And in fact, there were so many that Paris, it's been written, was called by a few cynics Newport on the Seine. Edith wasn't particularly interested in them. In fact, it was most of them from whom she sought to escape. The keys to Wharton's welcome in Paris and her chance to penetrate certain levels of French society were two. One, she was arriving in Paris as a tremendously successful American writer. France admired women who wrote, and who, of course, could be marginalized and looked down upon back in New York. In fact, one of her first tasks when she arrived in Paris was to find a Parisian publisher for a French translation of The House of Mirth. The second, and above all, most important factor in all of this was her association and friendship with the French novelist and playwright Paul Bourget. Edith met Bourget years before when she and Teddy were living in Newport following their marriage. Bourget and his wife Minnie had come to America to observe American life and to write articles that became his fairly pejorative assessment of Gilded Age life called Outremer, Overseas. Edith had invited him to dine at her Newport home, Land's End. She had been interested in some of his essays, and here she had a true French intellectual and writer with whom she could talk endlessly about ideas and the craft of writing. Even though it was years before she herself transitioned to France, it seems that perhaps the seeds for establishing an existence there that truly fed her soul were sown right here. The politics and differences in the Wharton-Bourget friendship could be an episode unto themselves. 
They respected each other's writing styles, although there were certainly areas of politics where they most certainly did not agree. It was a result of Bourget's position as a member of the venerated Académie Française and his reputation as a conservative writer that paved the way for Edith's own introductions into the salons and drawing rooms of the Faubourg. Edith writes, as a stranger and newcomer, not only outside of all groups and coteries, but hardly aware of their existence, I enjoyed my freedom not possible in those days to the native-born who were still enclosed in the old social pigeonholes, which they had begun to laugh at, but to which they still flew back. One of the most important things in that passage is that Wharton confirms herself as an outsider, a foreigner in her French world. She loved the country, but she never became a French citizen. She chose to remain the observer the writer, with just a step or two of distance, always from her subjects. One of the things that deeply attracted Edith to French culture and civilization was its centuries-old traditions and practices, and nowhere was that still in existence as much as among the lingering aristocracy of the Faubourg. The rule was simple. One met others when one was invited to a salon. And knowing the right people was key to securing an invitation to a salon. The practice of hosting a salon was an Italian invention that went back to the 16th century and became wildly popular and further refined in France in the 17th and 18th centuries. The idea of a salon was a gathering, usually a weekly reception, but often a dinner for a free exchange of ideas. But if you were invited, it was essential that you presented yourself as witty, charming, educated, informed, and endlessly fascinating. As a dear French friend of mine so clearly said to me, you absolutely had to sing for your supper. And with that, I'm going to take a short break and I'll be back with a deeper look into the salons of the Faubourg Saint-Germain as we continue our story. To celebrate Edith Wharton's birthday later this month, please join me, Carl Raymond, host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, for a very special virtual webinar, The Private World of Edith Wharton. This 90-minute exploration via Zoom will be an intimate look at her life through her homes in New York, Newport, Lenox, Massachusetts, and ultimately in Paris. The webinar, with an audience Q&A to follow, will be accompanied by modern as well as rare and vintage archival images. Join me on Tuesday, January 24th, Edith Wharton's actual birthday, at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for this special virtual event. And not to worry, if you can't join us live, ticket buyers will receive a recording of the event, which will be live for three days. To join us, please visit thegildedgentleman.com and click on the Events tab for the link to buy tickets. No matter what you're a fan of, Texas has the trip for you. There's the trip to Texas and the trip. Or maybe you're the kind of fan who'd prefer a trip to Texas or a trip. Either way, go to traveltexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. 
Travel is great, but planning for travel can be time-consuming and difficult. That's where One Travel comes in. With One Travel, you'll find everything you need to book the perfect trip. Flights, hotels, cars, transportation, it's all right there. With One Travel, you can book online, via app, or even pick up the phone and talk to a travel advisor ready to help you make your selections. Visit onetravel.com slash music or call 855-437-2154. Plan it, book it, live it. One Travel. The most exciting part of a vacation stay at a home rental? Easy. It's being greeted upon arrival with a rusted lockbox affixed to the underside of a stranger's condo. Yeah, you simply twist knobs, click gears, jiggle it, and then rip it off its moorings, and voila! Your prize is a key to a questionable home rental and maybe tetanus. When you just want to get your vacation started by actually getting into your room, it matters where you stay. At Hilton, we deliver your key right to your phone on the Hilton Honors app. Hilton for the stay. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. And this week, we are taking a look at the world of Edith Wharton's Paris. Bourget's influence allowed Wharton to be invited to several of the salons of the Faubourg, including to that of the Vienna-born Comtesse Rosa de Fitzjames. Rosa had her weekly salon on Tuesday nights at her hotel at 142 Rue de Grenelle, which is now the home of the Swiss Embassy. The intellectual level and eccentricity of those that Edith met in the Faubourg salons intrigued, stimulated, and grounded her. André Gide became a friend, although it's unclear if Wharton was aware of Gide's other inclinations. She called him a mass of quivering susceptibilities, but he is so charming one ends by not minding. Along with Gide, Paul Valéry, Jean Cocteau, who she came to know well, others that became part of her circle, and she theirs, included the extraordinary part-Romanian, part-Greek countess, Anna de Noailles. A small, dark-haired woman, Anna de Noailles was a poet of sorts, and Edith admired her work. The countess was known for being an unstoppable talker. The custom in salons was to speak generally for no longer than five minutes at one's turn. It's been reported that some hostesses actually had bells that they rang to cut you off. Anna de Noailles held court with lengthy monologues that would bring a harsh reaction if she were interrupted. She had her catalog of eccentricities, including receiving guests in bed and maintaining, as did Proust, a cork-lined bedroom to preserve ultimate quiet. And by the way, it was Anna who gave Marcel the idea. And then, for Edith, most importantly, was the American Walter Berry. Berry was perhaps more important in her life than her association with Bourget, and certainly in a different way. Edith had met Walter Van Rensselaer Berry as a young woman while summering in Bar Harbor, Maine. He was tall, elegant, extremely well-educated, and handsome. His intellect almost perfectly matched hers. It's long been surmised that perhaps Barry would have once proposed marriage to the young Edith, yet the moment never seems to have arrived, and instead they developed a most deep and strong friendship. Now that Barry, too, was living in Paris, he provided a stabilizing influence and source of consistent support for her. The Parisian upper-crust social world, called the Gratin by the French, toward which Edith was inching ever more closely, 
was the domain of another writer with whom it's fascinating to draw some parallels, and that was Marcel Proust. Strangely, perhaps, Edith and Proust never met, although they came so incredibly close to each other with their friends and contacts. Walter Berry, for example, was a great friend of Proust's. Although she could have, she chose not to ask for an introduction or pursue the elusive Marcel. She held off. Neither Henry James nor I ever met Proust. The meeting could have been easily arranged, for he was the friend of some of my most intimate friends. I did not know then how ill he already was. At the time, even, his intimates scarcely guessed it. And to be told that the only people who interested him were dukes and duchesses, and the only place to find him was at the Ritz at midnight, put me off. Well, that said, she was a passionate follower of his seven-volume masterpiece as it was published à la recherche de temps perdu. And she made extensive notes and underlinings and markings in her own personal copies. Proust circulated in the Faubourg and began to keep the notes that he would use to create his seven-volume masterwork. Nonetheless, the dukes, comtesses, vicomtesses that both Wharton and Proust met were fashioned into characters in both their works. Edith first used Paris as a setting early on in her short story, The Lamp of Psyche, published in 1895. The first major work, which she set in Paris, and in which she really began to dissect the moral, mores, and cultural differences between America and France, was her novella Madame de Trême, which was published in 1907. I think of this quite short novella as perhaps a sketch for what was to become her much lengthier and ambitious The Custom of the Country, which she began in 1908 and was published in 1913. Madame de Trême is set in the Faubourg and involves the desire of a young American man to marry his childhood sweetheart, who has instead married a French aristocrat and found a disappointing and destructive marriage. Another work she began in 1906, just as she arrived and began her longer and longer stays in Paris, was her classic and possibly her most read work, Ethan Frome. Frome is set, of course, in New England. It's set in a stark village in western Massachusetts, and it's based on a true-life sledding accident. Despite its popularity as a brilliant example of Wharton's powers as a writer, the story behind the story is important here. Edith began to write Frome when she was here in Paris, and her first draft was written in French. She wanted to refine her French and see if she could sustain a full-length work in the language. Despite the fact that she began it in 1906, she revised it, it was then completed in English, and it was published in 1912. Teddy Wharton, Edith's husband, began to show signs of what we could now consider bipolar disorder as early as 1902, just as they were moving into the mount. Mood swings, episodes of violent outbursts, and general emotional instability plagued him often on with increasing occurrences. Edith did what she could to care for him. On a more intimate level, it is surmised that the marriage since its beginning was sexually remote and unfulfilling. All of this set the stage for a relationship that was to define the years of 1907 to 1910 for Edith Wharton in Paris, and that was an extramarital secret affair. And Paris, of course, was the perfect place for a secret affair, 
behind the imposing walls of the Faubourg or in the secluded parks and ancient villages circling Paris, lovers, including Edith, could be assured of discretion and protection. It was in the spring of 1907 at the Salon of Rosa de Fitzjames that Edith Wharton was introduced to the American journalist Morton Fullerton. Edith was intrigued from the beginning, but she admitted in a letter to her friend Sally Norton that she found him mysterious. And mysterious he certainly was. By the time they met, Morton Fullerton had had several homosexual affairs, circulated in the London circles as a friend of Oscar Wilde, tangled with a blackmailing mistress and a divorced wife. Despite their closeness, it's unclear how much Wharton knew of his past. It's such an important relationship that I devoted an entire episode to explaining it. I encourage you to listen to my previous episode, A Sprig of Witch Hazel, Edith Wharton's Secret Affair, for a more in-depth look at the details and repercussions of the Morton Fullerton affair. By 1910, the affair with Fullerton had run its course. Fullerton, becoming more and more unreliable despite Wharton's passionate letters and expressed frustrations. Fullerton became predictably scarce for a number of years, but they remained peripheral friends into the 1920s. Edith turned to him for support during the last and tremendously emotional period surrounding her divorce to Teddy. Coinciding with the slowing of her affair with Morton, Edith wanted a permanent address in Paris, and she took 53 Rue de Varennes just down the street from the Vanderbilt apartment and moved in in time for her 48th birthday. Teddy's mental condition worsened over the next couple of years and put a tremendous strain on their relationship. Unable to find effective treatment or perhaps even an accurate diagnosis, Teddy's frustration and behavior became more erratic, occasionally violent, and involved infidelity and increased alcoholism. As much as she resisted divorce, Edith realized that it was her only possibility for her to move forward. Her own tight upbringing still made her reject divorce, even though by the early 20th century, divorce in America was becoming increasingly common, and the New York gossip papers like Edith's detested town topics were filled with the news of the latest one. Edith divorced Teddy Wharton in 1913 in France and through the French court system. She wanted as quiet a proceeding as possible, and since Teddy had committed adultery in France as well, she had the grounds. Furthermore, no press was allowed in the court in a French divorce proceeding, and as a result, she hoped it could be kept away as much as possible from her American public. Edith returned to America in 1913 for her niece Beatrix's wedding. Aside from this visit, she returned only once more briefly to America and remained permanently settled in France for the rest of her life. Characters in Wharton's novels and stories set in Paris often find themselves and their dramas enacted in Paris's grand hotels and restaurants, the great stage sets of the Belle Epoque, before all was to change by the beginning of war. The most famous hotel in Paris, at least for the hordes of Americans swarming to the City of Light, was the Ritz on Place Vendôme. The Hotel Ritz was opened on June 1, 1898 by Swiss hotelier César Ritz and the great French chef Auguste Escoffier, both of whom had a great success renovating and launching London's Savoy Hotel. Edith hated the Ritz. In fact, she created a fictional portrayal of the Ritz in several works, most notably in The Custom of the Country. She sets a pivotal scene in the dining room of the Ritz in which the social-climbing American Undine Sprague meets the French aristocrat Raymond Deschel, who is to become her second husband. 
In Wharton's fiction, the Ritz appears refashioned as the Nouveau Luxe. Edith shares her opinion of a fairly scathing description of dinner at the Ritz. The character, Charles Bowen, who functions as a sort of social commentator in the novel, is waiting alone in the dining room for his guest, Raymond Deschel, whom he subsequently presents to Undine. The dining room of the Nouveau Luxe was at its fullest, and having contracted on the garden side through the stress of weather, had even overflowed to the farther end of the long hall beyond, so that Bowen, from his corner, surveyed the seemingly endless perspective of plumed and jeweled heads, of shoulders bare or black-coated, encircling the close-packed tables. During his some 40 years, perpetual exercise of his perceptions, he had never come across anything that gave them the special titillation produced by the sight of the dinner hour at the Nouveau Luxe. The same sense of putting his hand on human nature's passion for the factitious, its incorrigible habit of imitating the imitation. The hotel that Edith Wharton did love and had a deep fondness for was over on the Place de la Concorde at the base of the Champs-Élysées, and that was the Hotel Crillon. The Crillon was a personal hotel for her and escapes any criticism in her writing, and it's used as a setting by other writers, most notably Ernest Hemingway, as a setting for The Sun Also Rises. Edith often chose to stay at the Crillon when her Paris residences were being prepared for her return. As she began to close the door on her own American existence, she became deeply disenchanted with the country that she saw. Hermione Lee, in her magisterial biography, sums it up. She believed in an old-fashioned idea of society as an entity with distinction and with some moral function and was appalled by its disintegration. I think that right there is one of the key points and paradoxes of Edith Wharton. As much as she wanted and needed to escape the rigidity of the New York society she once knew and was so sharply critical of all of its damaging and destructive natures, there was somewhere in it all a kind of moral order that she never stopped searching to maintain. In August of 1914, war was declared in France, and despite the hopes that the conflicts would be short, they of course persisted and intensified until 1918, four long years. At some points, over 2,000 French soldiers were dying each day. So much of Belgium had been destroyed, and widows and orphans poured into Paris as the city itself braced for attacks. One of the most surprising periods in Wharton's life was indeed her war years in Paris. Instead of fleeing the city for the duration she stayed, although she left for short periods, Edith enacted her extraordinary managerial skills. In fact, biographers and scholars have said that she would have been excellent at running a corporation. Edith tapped into her own financial resources and used her extensive and wealthy contacts to tap into theirs, and she went to work to save and protect her adoptive country that she so deeply loved. Henry James called her the great generalissima. Her first endeavor was to establish ouvoirs, or workrooms connected to the French Red Cross, sewing rooms that employed seamstresses who had been forced out of work by the war. The women were paid a franc a day and given a hot meal and produced bandages, sweaters, socks, and knitted wear for the soldiers at the front. Her second major effort was to establish a network of hostels in alliance with the Foyer Franco-Belge, where displaced women and children would be safely cared for, fed, and possibly could find employment. 
One of her major concerns was care for victims of rampant TB and sourcing suitable places where victims could recover. She became passionately involved with the Children of Flanders charity, raising money, relentlessly working her contacts back in New York for financial support. She undertook the project of soliciting writing and artwork to create a compilation entitled The Book of the Homeless to be sold for charity, which was published by Appleton's in 1916 and contained contributions of poetry, art, and writing by a stunning lineup of contributors, including Sarah Bernhardt, Rupert Brooke, Joseph Conrad, Jean Cocteau, Henry James, and Igor Stravinsky. She hosted a series of concerts in her apartment, relentlessly wrote letters to friends asking for funds, and even wrote to the New York Times editors with a plea for $10,000 from their readers. With Minnie Jones, her sister-in-law, as her contact in New York, she organized a charity auction held at the American Art Galleries on Fifth Avenue, just steps from her birthplace, with the proceeds benefiting her hostels. Using her influence as a major literary figure, she was granted permission, with Walter Berry at her side, to visit the front herself and write pieces of war reporting. Throughout 1915 through February and August, she made five trips to the front and saw the war's destruction firsthand and even narrowly avoided attacks in the process. For her work and efforts, she was recognized by the French government in March of 1916. And ever committed to celebrating and translating her deep connection to France, Wharton published a nonfiction work, French Ways and Their Meaning, in 1919. By the end of the war, in 1918, Wharton was exhausted and ready to leave Paris for good. She saw a city quickly evolving with a speed and with values that threw her. She began to experience some health challenges, some recurring, and some as a result of her exhausted state. She turned over 53 Rue de Varennes to Walter Berry, and in the years following the war, she chose the countryside of France to return to her writing and seeing friends. Between 1918 and 1919, she located two properties which were to become her homes for the rest of her life. In 1918, she bought the 18th century manor house she christened Pavillon Colomb, about an hour's drive to the north outside of Paris in the quaint Saint-Brice-sous-Forêt. The house itself had a charming history. It was built in 1779 by a nobleman as a home for his mistress, an actress called Mademoiselle Colomb, the Dove. Wharton renovated and redecorated the house and lovingly restored the gardens. The pavillon became a place where she could return to writing in peace and yet maintain an active schedule of entertaining friends. A year later, while exploring the south of France near Toulon, she discovered a nearly ruined chateau, a former medieval convent built into the walls of the old town of Hyères on the Mediterranean. She had long wanted to spend more time in the south of France, and the Bourgeois, her dear friends, had a home very close to Hyères. Wharton fell in love with the views from the terraces, but also with the potential to develop the gardens. As Hermione Lee comments in her biography, to choose a house in Old Hier in 1919 was to invest in that particular idea of French life, tradition, beauty, taste, and exclusiveness which has always inspired Wharton's writing on France and her commitment to her seconde patrie, her second country. Edith's chateau can still be found today with its lush gardens that she loved. 
It is now part of the city offices of Hier, but the gardens are open to the public. At this point in her life, Edith was reflective about the violent destruction that she had seen during the war that threatened her sense of history, aesthetic beauty, and ancient culture. It is in this period that we see her looking back to her earlier world of old New York, an attempt to resurrect just some of the moral stability and order that existed even in that world that was so long gone. She made some notes for a biographical work called Life and I, which remained unedited and unpublished until recent decades. She wanted to finish work on her war novels, but her publisher felt that the market was too saturated and asked her to write something else. In her sun-drenched Chateau at Hier, and in a remarkably short time, Edith Wharton wrote perhaps her greatest work, The Age of Innocence. The Age of Innocence is a remarkable novel for a number of reasons. Her tone is critical but nostalgic, far different from her sharply critical tone of The House of Mirth written and published 15 years before. We can sense a sadness in that tone as well. What I find fascinating about this is the fact that she was writing 50 years after the fictional events would have taken place, and she sets the novel at a time when she herself would have been a young child. And she was recreating this long-lost world while she was living in France and had been for essentially 12 years. Her sister-in-law, Minnie, was now divorced as well. Another reason for their tight sisterly bond was developed further as Minnie, back in New York, acted as Edith's gopher, her secretary, and her research assistant in confirming facts in details and researching locations. As a result, The Age of Innocence brings this world to light in a tremendously realistic way that gives us some of Wharton's very best writing. Edith made her last trip to America in the spring of 1923 to accept an honorary degree from Yale. It had been 10 years since she had been on American shores. She stayed at the St. Regis Hotel in New York before the trip to Yale, and upon returning to France after her short stay was never to see New York or America again. Wharton knew that after her death, her life would be the subject of biographies and commentary and analyses would be made. She made her attempt to have her own say in writing her own memoir, A Backward Glance, published in 1934. It's important to note that by the early 1930s, following the American stock market crash, that Edith's earning, mostly from her writing now, had dropped dramatically, and the publication of an autobiographical work was an additional attempt to shore up the coffers. I do recommend a reading of A Backward Glance with a great deal of awareness. It's charming, it's occasionally self-deprecating, and there are certainly insights, but it's clearly the work of a writer absolutely in control of what she tells you and what she doesn't. There is no mention of the Morton Fullerton affair whatsoever, nor are there many details of her struggles with Teddy. It is by no means a confessional tale. In the last years of her life, Wharton continued to see old friends, including her longtime friend, the art historian Bernard Berenson, who always had a suite ready for her at his villa outside Fiesoli in Tuscany. She made new friendships as well, including that with a young art historian, Kenneth Clark, whose son would in fact inherit half of Wharton's library. She was never part of the Paris Writers in the Twenties set, although she stayed current with new works and novels. Edith Wharton died at Pavillon Colombe on August 11, 1937, and the last we can see of her is in one surviving photograph taken at her home a few weeks before she died. 
somewhat more gaunt, ruffled cap and loose gown pulled around her, hand sturdily placed on her hip. She gives us an attempted smile as she stands in one of the great French doors which line the back of her home. It almost seems as if she looks past the photographer preserving her image and out instead onto her beloved garden. She was buried with French military honors in the Cimetière des Gonards in Versailles, just a few feet from her dear friend Walter Berry. Teddy had died in 1928 and was buried in a family plot in Lenox. In the places and spaces that she knew in France, there are today plaques to commemorate her. At Pavillon Colomb, the street in front has been renamed Rue Edith Wharton. The house is now privately owned. In Paris, there is a large plaque at 53 Rue de Varennes, her home for 10 years, and we see here the French assessment of her work. She was the very first American writer to leave her country for France for love, and this country, and for her writing. And further down, close to Henry James, the work of Edith Wharton shows in ways both delicate and modern the good society from which she came. Edith Wharton had an extraordinary life, and while she, as we said at the outset, may be best remembered for her portrait of Gilded Age New York society, it is to understand a bit of her life in France that is required to complete the story. It is no wonder that her biographies seem not to dip below 500 or so pages and run to well over 800. Her French life was important, and it must be considered when looking at her work, particularly that which was inspired by her love of France written while she was living there. I hope this episode has served to open that door, even just a crack, to allow some light to come forth. In a tribute to her mentor and friend Paul Bourget, published in 1936, she said, It is only in seeing other countries, in studying their customs, reading their books, associating with their inhabitants, that one can situate one's own country in the history of civilization. It was in France and in the French ways and their meanings that Edith Wharton found her connection to the ancient. It was that connection that was critical to her being, and yet at the same time, she found a place where she could be free as an intellectually curious an artistic woman. It was in France where Edith Wharton found her spirit confirmed and where she found her soul. In the end, I like to think that in considering Edith Wharton's life, looking at what she did, reading her thoughts and what she wrote, and in following her journey to find her soul, that she is in some ways offering us an invitation to find our own. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media, and this episode was edited and produced by Kieran Gannon. I invite you, my listeners, to become a patron of the show on patreon.com slash thegildedgentleman. Your support helps me with the research costs, studio rentals, production costs, and allows me to be able to research, write, and record the show. I couldn't do it without you. In addition, patrons have access to bonus content and special announcements and invitations to live and virtual events. I'll see you soon. After all, what's life without a little glint of gold? No matter what you're a fan of, Texas has the trip for you. There's the trip to Texas and the 
trip. Or maybe you're the kind of fan who'd prefer a trip to Texas. Or a trip. Either way, go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours.